Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm here with Aaron and Greg to talk about mountain biking in the summer. Some of the things that we're going to talk about specifically are heat, bugs, and plants. I want to start off by talking about heat and hydration. That's a big one that most of us are pretty aware of. There are a lot of products out there that are meant to help with your hydration needs on the trail. So I wanted to talk to you guys about what you do to stay hydrated on the trail and, and why it's important. For long rides, I think you need to take as much water with you as you can. Um, whatever is the biggest bladder you can fit in your hydration pack, go with that. Um, typically, it's 100 ounces is the, the biggest bladder you can get, and that should be enough liquids to safely get you through a three-hour ride in extreme heat. But just to be on the safe side, I also like to have a full hydration pack, and I like to put a uh, backup bottle on my on my bike itself, just in case. You know, just in case something happens and I run out of water, or one of my buddies that I'm riding with runs out of water, just to just to be sure. Yeah, for the water bottle on the bike, if I'm adding one of those, one of the things I love to do is put some sort of electrolyte drink mix in that bottle, um, and run straight water in my reservoir. This is because if you're riding in high heat or humidity, you know, just drinking water isn't enough to keep you hydrated. You need to make sure that you keep your electrolytes and salts in balance with your water consumption. And you can do that a few different ways through, whether that's through the types of food you're eating on the bike or through an electrolyte drink mix. Yeah, you just need to be conscious of that. Um, I have definitely cramped and bonked after drinking over a gallon of water in one day. And that was because I wasn't taking enough electrolytes. So um, that's something I like to use the water bottle for. Yeah, that's definitely something that I suffer with myself too, just drinking a lot, but then still getting cramps. And eventually I figured it out that I needed to be getting more salts and things. Some people recommend they bring like those little mustard packets that you can pick up at like fast food restaurants and suck one of those down because they have a lot of salt in them. But you can also get salt pills or tablets, um, and I've found that those work pretty well too. Yeah, there's no shortage of, of products available out there from just about any nutrition company. One of my personal favorites, um, going back to the electrolyte tabs, like uh, Greg was saying, I really like noon stuff. And like Greg, I usually try to put those only in my uh, bottles, but... The nice thing about noon is there's no uh, sugar or anything in it, nothing weird like that that's going to make your uh, bladder gross should you should you put them in your hydration bladder. You also want to stay hydrated when you're not riding, so that's something that often gets overlooked. You should be drinking water throughout the day anyway, but you know if you know you have a big ride coming up during the weekend, you know Thursday and Friday, have a you know. Drink, take a little bit more liquids in, maybe have a electrolyte tab or two throughout the day, and, and that'll help keep you topped up before your ride. That's a great tip. And one other thing to mention is, you know, we talked about the 100-ounce um, hydration reservoir. We talked about water bottle. But um, if you're really trying to go long in the summertime, you probably can't carry physically carry enough water if you're trying to do like 50 or 100 miles in a day. So um, if you're trying to do something like that, be sure to plan out water fill-up stops along your route using a map for water sources and talking with locals. Uh, but be sure to bring water treatment with you if you're planning to do something like that. Um, a chemical like Aquamira is good and lightweight and doesn't have taste to it. So 
Um, if you're really going long, uh, be sure to plan for it. Yeah, a little, little jar of iodine tablets is never a bad thing to have in your, in your hydration pack just in case of an emergency. It, it'll taste gross, but at least, at least you can treat some water. Well, another thing I wanted to talk about, you know, even if you're staying hydrated on the trail, there's also always the risk of heat stroke or heat exhaustion when you're riding in the summer. And I know a little bit about this from firsthand experience. I actually was riding in Arkansas a few years ago and the temperatures were above a hundred degrees, very humid. I was by myself and long story short, I was suffering from heat stroke and I needed to call 911 from the trail and somebody came out and rescued me, but it's heat stroke is no joke at all. And it's something that you need to watch out for. You definitely on hot days, you want to be riding with someone else so they can let you know like, Hey man, you're not looking good here. You might want to sit down and, and take a break or, you know, get off the bike entirely. So that's definitely something to figure out, sort of understand the symptoms of. I, I won't go into them here, but it's definitely something that's real and that can affect you as a mountain biker. One of the things you can do to perhaps eliminate the risk of heat stroke is to make good clothing choices. What do you guys usually wear on the trail in the summer? As little as possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know it's uh, maybe frowned upon by certain mountain biking circles, but at least here in Georgia, if you ride in the summer, you're going to want to ditch the baggies. You're just going to want to go with a, a jersey and a chamois because it's so hot and so humid here. If it's 95 degrees and 95% humidity, wearing a pair of baggies is like wearing a, a trash bag over your chamois. So... It's just one more thing to get sweaty and gross, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's pretty funny. You know, some sometimes we'll we'll go do uh, you know big backcountry rides, and you know be on our six inch travel bikes, and everyone's like flat pedals and five tens, but then they're wearing you know like a cross country race kit. So, but hey, I would rather feel cool than look cool. So um, that's that's what I go with. Plus one to that. I don't have much to add to that. Um, I will say pack a rain jacket and we'll talk more about that later but um, being prepared for changing weather conditions is critical um, you know it could be really hot when you start your ride but it could change later on so um, depends on where you're riding of course yeah and i'll add to what aaron said and say that i'm a really big fan of well two things when it comes to jerseys one is a full zip jersey so you can completely unzip it um, if you need to and really get good airflow in when you're moving. And then the other thing is sleeveless jerseys. I, people make fun of me for wearing them a lot. They say I look like a triathlete, but the thing is you get way better airflow through your arms and into your Jersey when you're don't have sleeves on. So that's mostly what I rock during the summer. Very true. And also a lot of companies make summer weight versions of their clothing as well. So it's even thinner Lycra, uh, even more breathable. So that's something if you do, you know, if it's hot where you are and you may want to look into that. And one other thing I like to do on really long rides is bring an extra pair of gloves because I know I, I like to wear full finger gloves even in the summer when I'm mountain biking and those things can get pretty waterlogged and gross. And, you know, you know, that smell when you go to wipe your nose and it's that gross garbage sweat smell it's nice to maybe halfway through the ride 
bust out that pair of dry gloves that you have in your uh, in your pack and swap them out. All right, so our bodies are covered for the most part. What about sunscreen for the parts of your body that aren't covered? You guys big fans of sunscreen? I'm kind of mixed on sunscreen. Here in Georgia, a lot of our, our trails are under tree cover, um, so I tend to be pretty conservative with my sunscreen usage. I put it on the back of my neck and the tops of my ears, you know, really sensitive areas, but... Otherwise, I don't like to use it too much. Um, I feel like it blocks up my pores and I can't sweat properly. And then that just makes me feel even more gross. So I try to try to limit it as much as possible. Um, one thing I will say, I've made this mistake numerous times. Don't put sunscreen on your forehead because yes. if you're wearing your helmet correctly, that part should be covered anyway by your helmet. And the mixture of sunscreen and sweat getting into your eyes is like someone spraying battery acid into your peepers. So don't, uh, don't do that. Yeah. I will say I grew up in Wisconsin and, uh, I didn't use sunscreen much when I lived in Wisconsin, but we were always under like dense tree cover. But I've learned since moving to Colorado that if you're riding in places like the high mountains or the desert, that sunscreen is uh, absolutely critical. If you, um, don't want to get burnt and you shouldn't want to get burnt because it's no fun. So I've taken to using it religiously out here. Uh, even if you tan really well, which I do, you can still get burned in a really short amount of time at high elevation. You know, if you're getting up above 12,000 feet, it is, you know, the, A, there's no shade because you're up above tree line and B, it's just a uh, brutal, the sun is, will take a toll on you. So I have two pro tips for you uh, that I've learned the hard way. If you're riding in those conditions, um, number one is since you don't want to be reapplying sunscreen all day long, I like to apply one layer of the strongest stuff I can find, usually SPF 50 in the morning, knowing that I'll probably wear off a bit later on. But for me, that's generally that one layer of heavy sunscreen is enough to keep me happy and burn free all day long. And the second item is to get chapstick with sunscreen. Uh, usually it's SPF 15, but you want some sort of chapstick with some sort of sunscreen. Uh, again, this is one I've unfortunately learned the hard way, but uh, the skin on your lips is actually some of the thinnest skin on the body and it's the easiest to get burned and it's generally not covered by something like your helmet or your glasses. So put that chapstick on and that's one thing I try to reapply all day long and just keep it um, in my top two bag, easy to use and easy to um, get to and that keeps me happy. So yeah, it definitely depends a bit on the conditions you're riding in, for sure. Right on. What about sunglasses? Yes. <laughs> Just yes. My my two cents is, you know, if you're riding, like, in heavy tree cover and you might be busting out of tree cover, like a photochromic lens that transitions, like, brightness is hard to beat. But out here in Colorado, I just use a normal lens that's really dark, and I wear them all the time. Uh, stay tuned for an upcoming uh, review of a pair of Oakley Jawbreaker sunglasses that I've become addicted to. So you'll read more about those soon. Yes, if you follow Greg on Instagram, you can indeed confirm that fact. <laughs> He's always got a pair of glasses on. I love sunglasses. I've got, you know, tons of pairs, but I sweat like crazy. So I always run into the issue um, going up a climb that, I'm getting sweat on the lens and then mix that with the dust. And then eventually it's just, I can't see. So 
a lot of times I end up, well, most rides I start out wearing glasses, but I pretty soon end up having to take them off. So one thing I've learned to do is bring uh, some sort of little chamois or lens wipe cloth or something um, to to keep the lenses clean because, yeah, sun, sunglasses are good, not just for protection from from the sun, but also from, you know, debris and, and branches and other stuff like that that's on the trail. Okay, before we move on from talking about heat, any more tips that you guys have for mountain biking in hot, hot days? Well, I know uh, one of one of Jeff's favorites is to ride at night. That way, you know, it's dark, so you don't have to contend with the sun. But otherwise, apart from that, ride in the evening, you know, not when it's dark, but later in the day, late afternoon, early evening, and it's still going to be hot. I mean, that's typically the hottest part of the day here in Georgia because the sun has just been baking everything all day long, so everything's had a chance to heat up. But at least you're not having to contend with the direct sunlight, so it's uh, it's not quite as miserable. Or you can always ride in the early morning hours, which is another good one if you're an early riser. I'm not. But uh, one thing I will say uh, in the summer here we do have a lot of spider webs on the trail. So if you're the first person out there riding in the morning, then you get a face full of them. And you need to, when you're getting used to the heat, you need to acclimatize to it. So I know the first few rides in the in really hot weather are are rough for me. You know, this year, even though I I had been riding six days a week, the first day that it got up to 90 degrees, I had it was hard for me to function. So you really need to take your time, ease into it. Your body has to adjust to it. So you need to, uh, until you're acclimatized, you need to limit the time that you're, you're out riding. Yeah, that's a good, really good point. We hear a lot of stories about people getting hurt and injured early in the season. And a lot of times it is because they're not acclimated to the heat or, you know, they're, they're still sort of in winter shape. My favorite tip, if you live in a place with a lot of elevation change, is to choose the elevation that you're riding at uh, depending on the condition. So in the summertime, that means going up as high an elevation as possible. And lots of times you can drop 10, 20 or more degrees in temperature, which, um, you know, again, we talked about the sunlight. That's brutal, but the temperature is going to be way cooler, which um, feels great. Sometimes even going you know, someplace that's five degrees cooler is going to make a lot of difference just in how you feel. Again, going back to the climatizing. So um, that's my favorite thing to do in the summertime. Okay, now let's talk about summertime bugs. And I want to start off talking about ticks. Those things are so gross. What do you guys, <laughs> how do you guys deal with ticks? Yeah, growing up in Wisconsin, we, it was just sort of a fact of life there. Like, you know, you go out in the woods and you generally come back with a tick. And every time you go out in the woods, you come back and you do a full body check for ticks and uh, and pull a few off of you, which I don't know, you sort of learn to deal with it. But um, I currently know two people from Wisconsin who both have Lyme's disease right now and are trying to deal with treatment. And it is not a fun time. Like, I guess I didn't really realize how serious it was, you know, since I've never had it. But I mean, they're dealing with chronic joint pain and like uh, pain all over and they're having difficulty just functioning in everyday life and there's different levels of severity of it but um, it is no joke so be sure to check for ticks if you're out in the woods yeah do a very like like greg said do a very thorough check especially around any 
seams or anything on your clothing. They like to kind of get in around maybe the tops of your socks or they can really get anywhere. They're really gross. So if, if you're in an area that you, there's ticks, you really need to do a, a full cavity search when you get back. But uh, if you do find a tick on you, the CDC uh, recommends using just a fine tipped pair of tweezers and you want to get as close to the as, to your skin as possible and then you want to just pull straight up and out using even steady pressure. You don't want to jerk. You don't want to twist because you don't want any part of that tick breaking off in your skin. And if it does break off in your skin, you need to get those parts out as well. And then, of course, when you're done, kill the tick. Don't smash it with your hands or anything, but, you know, flush it down the toilet or something like that. And then be sure you wash your hands thoroughly and clean the, the bite area thoroughly as well. Because like Greg said, you don't want to mess with that. And if you end up having a rash or a fever or anything in the following days, you need to go see a doctor ASAP and let them know what happened. Yeah, 100% with that. The one thing I would add is like the sooner you find the tick, the better. Like if they're on you for a longer period of time, they're going to dig in further, which is going to make it harder to remove. It also takes a while to actually transmit the Lyme's disease. So if you can get the tick ASAP, like that's just going to make your life a whole lot easier. So that's why the checking is super important. What about mosquitoes? We've been hearing a lot about Zika this year. Is there anything you can do to keep mosquitoes away? Just don't stop riding, Jeff. Just keep going. <laughs> that's true. So someone actually told me that, and I don't know if it's true, but they said that mosquitoes can only fly something like one mile an hour or three miles an hour or something. So as long as you're moving a little bit, they're not going to keep up with you. I don't know if that's true. It's totally true. I mean, just through anecdotal evidence, like I've ridden in some horrible, just horrible, why would anybody put a trail there like swamps in Wisconsin and had a horrible mosquito. Actually, we had a lot of horrible things in Wisconsin. <laughs> but this trail system was so poorly signed that I had to stop at these unmarked junctions, look at a picture I had taken on a point-and-shoot camera of the trailhead map to try to, like, navigate. And every moment I stopped, just eating alive. But as soon as I got moving again, I just dropped the mosquitoes. So it's like, if you, it's hard when you're riding with a group. But if you're on your own and you can just keep moving, like, I found I don't need to wear bug spray unless I'm standing around. So it does work. That's a good point. Uh, if you do wear bug spray, get something with DEET in it. Uh, that's that's what I've found to work anyway. Something like the off brand, uh, not off brand, but off the actual brand, uh, Deep Woods. It's got a, a high deep content, and I've tried all different kinds of bug sprays and the all natural ones and the you know the ones that sing little songs to the mosquitoes to try to keep them away, but they don't work. Uh, at least not for me. <laughs> So deet, get something with deet in it, but that stuff's gross. Definitely follow the directions on the uh, packaging because a little bit goes a long way, and it's just it's it's nasty shit. So don't mess around with it. Don't spray it in your eyes or in your mouth. When I was in the military, they issued us deet, and it was a hundred percent deet. You just slather that stuff on, and nothing will bother you. <laughs> Jeez, isn't that the stuff that's like? causing uh the eagle eggs to get fracture and not like reproducing stuff like that stuff's yeah probably i mean there are natural alternatives um i know a lot of our a lot of our neighbors are into that kind of stuff and so it does some of that stuff does work we've got some at home our backyard is like covered in mosquitoes and 
put some of that on, they usually don't mess with you. So you can definitely shop around. Okay, let's move on to plants. Here in the south, we have a lot of poison ivy. And I know other parts of the country, it's poison oak, but it's kind of the same same stuff. So you guys have any tips for dealing with poison ivy and poison oak? I do. And yeah, for the record, I've had both poison ivy and poison oak, and they both suck, but one is not worse than the other. <laughs> I know for some reason, uh, a lot of West Coasters are really proud of their poison oak. Potent stuff out there. I guess so. Well, I've had both, and they're both terrible. I've, I have uh, very sensitive skin, I guess, or at least I'm very sensitive to, <laughs> to uh, poison ivy. So pretty much the entire summer I'm dealing with some level of, of poison ivy rash, and I'm actually just getting over one of the worst cases I've had in a while currently. Yeah, it's it's terrible. So, of course, you've probably heard this before, but leaves of three, let them be, you know. So if you see a plant on the ground, hanging from a tree, whatever, and it's got three leaves that are all connected, leave it alone. Don't touch it because um, there's a good chance it'll be poison ivy. Poison ivy can look very different. and We have it all. I can't really even reiterate this enough. It is everywhere down here. And in the same little patch of woods, there it can be covered in poison ivy, but the leaves will look substantially different. Some might be very small and kind of like a light green. And then you can have leaves that are almost the size of your hand and they're very dark green and they look really waxy, but it's all poison ivy. And it's all going to do the same thing to you. So don't touch it. And especially when poison ivy grows up a tree, you'll see these thick, hairy, gross looking vines. That is super, super, super potent. So do not mess with hairy vines. <laughs> yeah, in the summertime, though, we're actually pretty fortunate because you can actually see the leaves. But in the winter, poison ivy loses its leaves. So it makes it really tough to distinguish and to recognize. But you can still get exposure to that, and it's still going to cause a problem, even if you just touch you know, the branches or vines or whatever. Yeah, even if it's dead, poison ivy still make you uh, itch. So it's a really shitty plant. I don't know why we have it. <laughs> why does that exist? Exactly. Just why? One thing I like to do, like I said, a lot of our local trails are, are covered in the stuff. And if I'm riding out of my house, what I'll do when I get home is I just leave a little thing of dish soap out in the yard next to the hose and come home, put the bike away. And then before I go in the house, I just wash off with the hose and... Uh, some dish soap and that'll you don't you want to use cold water because if you have the oils on your skin and you use hot water that's going to open up your pores and then that's going to you know suck the poison ivy oil into your skin which is exactly what you don't want so use a mild soap cold water and scrub your legs and arms any exposed skin really well and then of course you know shower again later you know once the rash does show up on you it's too late you've already got it you know, it usually takes a couple days. Like this last case I got, I think I know when, when I got it well, on the Tuesday night faster mustache ride. And I don't think it showed up till Thursday or Friday of that week. And it may seem like it's spreading because over the next couple of days, you might see more and more spots of it. But it's not because you're itching it. It's not because the oil is still there unless you haven't showered in several days, which, you know, that's just gross. But yeah, one, once once you have it, you've got it. You can't spread it by... Uh, itching it. That's just a myth. Um, you shouldn't scratch it. 
because, you know, you could open it up and then you've got an open sore and that has the potential to get infected. So, you know, treat it with some calamine or some other anti-itch cream. Uh, you know, in severe cases, you can go to your doctor and they will prescribe you some sort of uh, corticosteroid, either a cream or a pill that you take, which I've unfortunately had to do a couple times. So listen to me, folks. I'm a poison ivy expert here. <laughs> and one thing I will say that works uh, for me once I do have it, uh, so this is once you have poison ivy, if you like take your shower head and you turn on the water like as hot as you can and you spray it on your affected area, assuming it's not too sensitive, spray that hot water on there as hot as you can stand for as long as you can stand essentially. And eventually what happens is your nerve receptors get overloaded and um, you'll get a few itch-free hours out of that. So I like to do that right before I go to bed so at least I'm not laying in bed trying to fall asleep with my leg itching like crazy. Well, aside from poison ivy, the other thing to think about in terms of plants in the summer is that a lot of trails are going to start to get overgrown and that can make route finding difficult. So a lot of times that's really just going to slow you down. So plan a little bit of extra time if you're riding a trail in the summer. You don't normally ride in the summer, but you can also bring a pair of clippers with you and, you know, help out a little bit if you find yourself bogged down in some overgrown trails. Just don't cut poison ivy. Don't cut poison ivy and, and don't go too far. Don't go crazy cutting, you know, woody branches and things. People tend to get upset about that. But anything that's green and that's like blocking the trail, usually going to be okay if you cut that out of the way and people behind you are going to appreciate that. Finally, talking about summertime riding, what about weather and lightning? Is that a little more common in the summer, you guys found, or how do you deal with it? So here in Colorado, and in the high mountains at least, um, summer is thunderstorm season. And we have like sort of this monsoonal thunderstorm thing going on that is pretty serious. So I'm going to talk about it for just a little bit. Um, so here, at least in Colorado, we get these things that are like afternoon thunderstorms in at high elevations. And they roll in about in the early afternoon, usually about 1 or 2 o'clock. And they just drop lightning all over the place. It's crazy. There's just lightning bolts going like nuts. So I would recommend, if, especially if you're riding in the high mountains, to learn about the local storm patterns and the local weather because it everything differs a little bit place to place. Um, but I'm just going to share some general tips and rules of thumb from Colorado uh, because they do tend to apply to a few different places. So, So here goes. Um, so here in Colorado, storms usually roll in again in the early afternoon, but it's usually accompanied by extremely heavy, you know, lightning hitting at high elevations, like above treeline. And it's, it's no joke. Like last year, a number of people died in my local mountain range, just a few miles from my house from lightning strikes, um, while climbing mountains. So it's, you know, it kills a number of people every year. You're not guaranteed to die from a lightning strike, but, uh, you very well could, and it can really mess you up. So it's it's not something to mess around with. So the general rule of thumb is to get to your high point, um, whether that's your mountain summit or the high point of your ride above treeline, get there by noon, and then descend down and try to get back below treeline by about 1 p.m. at the latest. Generally, once you're below treeline, you're going to be good. That's not a guarantee. Um, and neither is the 1 p.m. rule of thumb guarantee. Just last year, 
some folks are climbing Mount Yale, which is just down the road from me. And they were already headed down and well off the summit by 11.45 in the morning. And they still got struck by lightning. And it was one of the most uh, lethal lightning strikes of the year here in Colorado. And several people died. So it's uh, there are rule of, rules of thumb. There are no guarantees. So if you see a storm rolling in and you're at high elevation, you're above tree line, just don't be so tied to your plans that you wind up dead because you can very well die and you want to live to ride another day. So if you see a storm turning in, and especially if you're on out and back route, just turn around, go down, try the route again when you know you have a storm-free day. Um, one other thing to consider is the rain that happens at high elevation. So when I used to ride in the summer in Georgia, rain was awesome because it would cool us down and we'd feel great. Um, but here, especially at high elevation, the rain is extremely cold, like usually just barely above freezing. Lots of times it can even be snow up high and then melt by the time it hits you. So it's it's extremely cold. So if you don't have a rain jacket, you can be looking at hypothermia really quickly. Um, also, the storms tend to bring in a cold front with them. Uh, just the air is colder as well and can easily drop, drop the temperature 20 to 40 degrees in a matter of minutes. So... Without a rain jacket, a waterproof layer, and something warm, if you get caught in a storm, and especially if you also have lightning and you have to hunker down in the trees and wait out the lightning, you could also be facing hypothermia and death um, from exposure even without lightning. So um, please be sure to pack a rain jacket, even if it looks like it's going to be a beautiful day because it can change extremely quickly. Um, so hopefully I'm not bringing the vibe down, but uh, <laughs> honestly, just want people to uh, to be safe out there. John Fish wrote an article a few years ago about lightning strikes at high elevation. And um, if you want to learn more about it, I rec definitely recommend checking out that article. And it even includes a time chart of lightning strikes in Colorado and what time of day they happen. And one, two, three o'clock, there's just this massive spike. So um, statistically, it holds true during the summer. Anecdotally, it holds true, so um, just be safe. One other pro tip that I recently learned is that if you're in Colorado, at least, it differs from state to state, but search and rescue is actually free in Colorado. I've always heard that it was really expensive, um, but here in Colorado, it's free. I always advocate for accepting the risks and being self-sufficient, and I've written about that, but you know, if somebody breaks a leg or something major or life-threatening happens, you know, search and rescue is an option, so... Um, just always encourage people to play it safe and hopefully live to ride another day. So riding in high alpine trails is super fun and I'm going to be doing it all summer, but it's good to be cautious. Yeah. And aside from lightning strikes, there's also hail with a lot of those storms, yes. especially in Colorado. And I've been caught in that before and it definitely does help to have an extra layer or something just to keep that stuff off your skin because one it'll make you cold but also it hurts man it's like somebody throwing rocks at you you know so definitely if, if there's hail or any kind of storm you don't want to mess with it and you need to turn around or at least be prepared a little bit with rain gear yeah and the sucky thing is you usually get all these things at once it's like it's like hail snow rain lightning and high wind low temps it all happens at the same time so it's a you know when that storm moves in it's a bad situation. That's why avoiding the storm in the first place is like, you know, hopefully that'll keep you safe. Absolutely. Well, before we go today, I wanted to let our listeners know about a contest we're running on single tracks for the month of July. So if you're a single tracks member, 
you can check in at the mountain bike trails that you ride in July using our app or by connecting your Strava account. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to see who rides the most trails during the month of July. And for our top winners, we're going to have some awesome prizes from our sponsors, WTB, Jensen USA, Sombrio, Light in Motion, Bell. We're going to have prizes for the top three people who check in, so you're not going to want to miss out on that. That's all we've got for this week. Talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.